Hello and welcome to the Melting Pot Podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. Today I'm talking to a softly spoken Irishman, Fiona McDonnell, who has spent nine years working at Macquarie Telecom Group, now in sales. But early on in his time with Macquarie, he was responsible for transforming their offshore support operation and bringing it back to Sydney. Um, this is the first part of sort of two-part masterclass, this one with Fionn and today and, and the next one with Tony Panda, uh, who runs the technical services operations inside their cloud hosting group. But these guys have got absolutely world-class net promoter scores. And on the back of the interview that I did with the CEO, David Tudhope, a few months ago, a number of people have asked me for some more detail. You know, how did they do it? What were the practical steps? Why did they take the steps? What was the journey? What did they do? How can people learn? How bad was it when they started? Because when people think about an NPS score of 80 and they're sitting there at wherever they are, 10s or 20s, it feels like a hell of a hill to climb. But these guys had a terrible NPS score when they started. Awful. Minus 50, minus 70. And it's a journey of five years, six years, seven years. And both uh, Fiona and Tony will, will give us some really interesting insight into, you know, what did they have to do? What did they have to be consistent about? Uh, what were the cultural changes? How did they hire people who could go on this journey with them? And... Uh, yeah, Fiona, now sales manager for New South Wales for Macquarie Telecom Group, but I suppose the big chunk of his formative career at Hewlett Packard, doing the types of outsourcing that Macquarie found themselves in before they hired, before they hired him to make the transition onshore. So, with um, we'll get into it. My name is Fiona McDonnell, and I am the New South Wales new business manager here at Macquarie Telecom. We're not here to talk about that, though. We're here to. I'm here to see if we can pull from your brain some actionable tips for other people who are on a net promoter score journey or thinking of embarking on using net promoter score to measure their customer satisfaction. Um, so, how did you end up being the king of MPS? Yeah, good question. So. Um, I was onboarded into Macquarie Telecom nine-ish years ago uh, when the CEO had made the brave and bold decision to in-house the contact centre function. And why did he make that decision when the vast majority of telcos in Australia were offshoring? It was because he'd recognised the value of the contact centre as a unique part of Macquarie Telecom value proposition, which is to provide outstanding customer service. And that actually goes back 26 years when the company was founded on a principle that he called PaaS, or Personal Accountable Service. We were all personally accountable for delivering an outstanding customer uh, service to our customer base. And what he determined um, about nine years ago was the best place to run that contact center function uh, was to put it into the most expensive real estate here at our company headquarters in the bosom of our customer base because he recognized it as crown jewels and you should never outsource your crown jewels. Mm -hmm. He had within that contact center vision or mission statement to create a best beyond class contact center function 
and that was uh, on the basis that the telecommunications industry within uh, within Australia is largely overcharged and underserviced, mm -hmm. uh, with 140,000 complaints a year going to our um ombudsman. And he knew if he were to create a contact centre that um, harnessed the core value proposition of Macquarie Telecom, he would indeed create that best beyond class contact centre. So I was onboarded to create that Greenfield contact centre, a luxury opportunity, because not often can you create from scratch your own uh, Greenfield contact centre. And uh, we decided uh, to put a lot of the secret sauce that we'd gained from several uh, R&D trips to the US around the Apple Connect Center and other contact centers that what was best uh, in breed at the time. And a large part of it was around the people that you hire. A large part of it was around the systems that you use within your contact center. A large part about it was the culture that you maintained within your contact center. Yeah. And so we uh, spent a lot of time on recruitment. We spent a lot of time identifying what we wanted and what we didn't want and working with recruitment agencies to do that. Uh, there were five mandatories on every hire. Uh, out of 5,000 applicants, we chose 22 uh, contact center customer service professionals. So we were quite choosy. Yeah. And uh, the five mandatories were that you could have never worked in a contact center before. Uh, if you're in that gene pool, we thought that you were tainted uh, right. are not suitable for our best beyond class contact. And is that still true today? That's still true today. Okay. Uh, for the Macquarie hub. Right. Okay. Um, um, yes, absolutely. And largely true for the hosting management centre. Yeah. Uh, we also said at the time, and still true today, that uh, you could never have worked in the telecommunications industry before because we felt also that uh, your behaviours and your attitudes towards the customers would have been morphed by those other organisations and we didn't want that. That would lead to a mediocre contact centre uh, uh -huh. experience and we wanted best beyond class. So those two gene pools were wiped from uh, where we could hire people. And uh, what does that land on? It lands on uh, hospitality, right. it lands on tourism, it lands on media. Uh, organisations where, or industries that um, foster uh, gold class customer service, uh -huh. uh, which was the third mandatory criteria uh, which was that every uh, candidate needed to be able to describe gold-class customer service uh, in order to be a potential candidate. The last two criteria were that they needed to have tertiary education, which is basically a proven ability to learn, and lastly an affinity for IT, which meant that we could overlay on top what we called a, a opera singer persona, because it didn't come from our industry and it didn't come from the contact centre, so we were hiring a gold-class customer service individual from hospitality and we need to overlay upon that person our product, our technology in order that they could be valuable within a telecommunications contact centre function. So the fifth uh, mandatory was the affinity for IT. So the guy or girl that's installed a multimedia system at home is a potential candidate. The guy or girl when there's a new iPhone released and knows how all the changes or upgrades that have occurred on it is a potential candidate. If you're not that person, you haven't got what we deem to be an affinity for IT, and you're not a candidate. Uh -huh. So we spent a lot of time, actually up to six months, uh, helping those uh, recruitment companies understand the culture of the individual we wanted to hire, 
that wasn't about a position description or a, a JD job description. It was about them understanding our culture and what we were trying to hire. And, and they still sent you 5,000 CVs. And they seeded through, they didn't send us them, they seeded through 5,000 ah, okay. CVs right. in order to send us uh, their preferred candidates. Okay. Interestingly, the first 12 preferred candidates from both recruitment companies, uh, which we ran uh, scenario workshops with, we failed everybody because no one had what we deemed to be the right level of gold-class customer service. And it wasn't until the second round or second batch of interviews, the second two dozen, uh, that we found three candidates that were worthy and of is that because they, function. Is, is that because they hadn't understood or they didn't think you were serious or they thought you'd compromise? Or I think actually the last one, they thought we'd compromise. Yeah. And they thought that they had exhausted the pool for what they thought we were looking for. And it wasn't until we said, no, the bar's higher. Uh, that they realised, you know, we weren't creating just another contact centre. We were creating something special. Okay. And they went out to hospitality. They went out to those industries or the, uh, those uh, verticals where gold-class customer service is at the core of everybody in those uh, sectors. And then we were able to, to find our gems or our diamonds in the rough. Fab. So we what was, the, what was the size of your first team then? Eleven. Uh-huh. And then the second, uh, that was in um, between... February and April 2010, uh, we hired our first, uh, hired and trained our first eleven. You asked them those questions, but did you do any, any other tests or? Yeah, any the screening, screening process was quite rigorous. So they had the resume, they had a voice conversation or interview with the recruitment company. If they passed those, and the recruitment company thought that they were a potential candidate, then we had these um, work group scenario days right. where we got them in and saw how they operated within a team. Uh-huh. So okay. your, aer- your aeroplane crash, what 15 items you make sure you take with those kind of centers uh, yes. that we ran actually, yeah. and that was quite exciting um, to see how people managed those kind of uh, scenarios. And what we were looking for was, you know, a high degree of uh, teamwork, uh, some leadership, but mainly it was having this uh, gold-class customer service and ability to sense unrequested requirements. Very easy to understand requested requirements, uh-huh. very difficult to sense unrequested requirements. And that's a very high degree of empathy. Yeah. And sometimes in these workshopping scenarios, you can gauge a level of empathy from one individual and definitely not from several other individuals. So yeah. you can very quickly, uh, when you see people in those scenarios, when you're, when you're looking for it, identify a high degree of, or not of, of empathy. Huh, okay, good. So if they were successful through those workshop scenarios, uh, then they had a formal, the first formal interview with either myself as hiring manager or uh, people in culture um, who, who were also looking for the same um, diamonds in the rough, if you will, yeah. to see that they fit into our Best Beyond Contact Centre. And in that, we were simply uh, further fine-tuning uh, that interview process to identify um, the candidates that we felt could uh, sa- satisfy our customers' needs, even if the customer didn't request them, but also gain a layer of, uh, I guess, technology understanding so that they could do first-level troubleshooting diagnostics in our industry. So before we go further down the journey... Mm-hmm. Um, give me an example of, and I know some of them, but I don't know them all. Choose whichever one you like. But just so then you created this thing. Give an example to the people listening. What what did that team then deliver as, as amazing service? What's one of your sort of standout stories that you? Okay. They've, heard, they've, they've heard about how hard it was to hire these people. Yeah. But then 
What are the type of heroics that they then pulled? And then uh, we'll go back to the sort of chronological tale. Sure, absolutely. So it's a huge uh, part of our proposition, I guess, is that these people have a level of empowerment mm -hmm. to do whatever it takes to delight a customer. And I think that's part of the beauty, that we're not putting any constraints and if then else clause around what they've got to do. So when they have the ability to seize those moments to delight, they indeed seize those moments to delight with no managerial approval and go forth, which is what we want them to do. An example, and I think we mentioned this uh, the last time, is where the CEO of one of our customers phones into the contact center and requests that uh, we give him, or in fact his spouse, uh, some assistance with regards to international uh, global roaming on her telephone, her mobile phone. And we said absolutely, uh, however our operator efficiency screen which would normally have found her number within our system automatically couldn't locate the number so we had to ask what's the mobile number and uh, the num number was provided and we found that the service wasn't with Macquarie Telecom. And uh, ordinarily, if you were to call a contact center function for a service that wasn't with that contact center function, they'd probably tell you to talk to your service provider. Well, we have uh, hired a group of staff who uh, feel empowered to delight in everything that they do. They knew that this CEO, quite an important role within a customer, uh, his, that his spouse was, was in a pickle, and whether or not we could help. So the question was asked, uh, what time are you boarding? and it was in three hours time and we asked for the gate and then um, when we understood we could help the individual uh, said sit tight we'll try and find a solution and they produced a, a mobile phone from the drawer they inserted a Macquarie Telecom SIM into it they activated global roaming on that SIM they jumped into a taxi drove out to the airport and to the gate and handed over that mobile phone and said enjoy your holidays and yeah, it, it, did they take some risk in that? Absolutely they took risk in that. Could that phone have been used to have excess data usage uh, without ever a contract being signed on it? Probably, but thankfully uh, the phone was returned after the holiday and it was all intact and all, all services were used appropriately. So the, the beauty about that story is that no manager's approval was sought mm -hmm. uh, in order for the customer service professional to do all that he did to uh, provide a solution to a problem without thinking about risk, consequence, uh, just thinking about, can I help this customer? Yes, I can. Let's help this customer. Yeah, or even profitability. Not or even profitability, no, absolutely. Yeah. 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 It takes care of itself later. Yeah, indeed. So taking you back to the chronological story. Yes. So we've got, you've got your 11 people. Yeah. You've got a contact centre. That, that work was previously done offshore by... A Not offshore in Australia, but by two separate incumbents. Okay, by con on contract. On contract, yeah, yeah. and very interestingly, you know, I won't mention the company name, company names, but they did exactly what we SLA'd them to do, right? We SLA'd them on what most contact centres are SLA'd, service level agreements uh, uh, in the contract, uh, to answer 80% of calls within 20 seconds, the 80-20 GOS rule. We SLA'd them on abandonment rates, uh, where they uh, could only have a maximum of 5% of calls abandoned. Uh, we SLA'd them on average handling time. Um, so that we could, we felt, ensure that they delivered a great service to us. What we didn't understand when we set those contracts up was, in order to create a best beyond class contact center function, all of those metrics mean nothing to individuals who are trying to delight the customer in everything that they do. Those metrics are interesting for a contact center manager, but not for the customer service professional that's trying to delight the customer in the interaction that they're having. The only thing that um, 
the customer service professional needs to worry about in our context and or in the context that we set up was whether or not the customer was delighted at the end of the call. So we only gave them one metric, and at the time that we launched it was CSAT, yeah. uh, Customer Satisfaction Survey, a zero to five, sorry, a one to five uh, scale, where uh, one was poor and five was great, and we had a 3.7 out of five average before we opened our contact center. So the two incumbents that were providing those services we're achieving a not so bad result, considering there's, at that time it was 120,000 uh, complaints to the Ombudsman every year. It's now 140,000, but the bar was low, and in that low bar, uh, we were achieving a 3.7 out of 5 score. Yeah. When we in-house the function with these people who only had gold-class customer service to the core, where we overlaid product on top, remove the noise of systems and metrics that stop them from delighting the customers in everything that they do. We transform that 3.7 out of 5 to 4.6 out of 5. And we maintained a 4.6 out of 5 average every month that we ran the CSAT system within our contact center. And it was purely because we'd hired the right people and we gave those right people the right metrics, which is around customer satisfaction, CSAT, ahead of operational efficiency. Yeah. An interesting uh, dilemma for most people who come from an operations or a contact center manager background around prioritizing customer centricity over operating efficiency. It, well, that's because they're looking at it from the point of view of the contact center being a cost mm -hmm. and not being a value center. Yeah. Absolutely right. And in fact, all the terminology at the time that we'd had was that we call our contact center the, the back end as opposed to the front end, where people got this thing called PaaS and CSAT, um, uh, whereas at the back end, which is what we called it then, could always improve in that space. So we have now renamed it, it's now the hub, McCray right. hub, so it's the center of everything that we do, and we've understood, actually it's a lot of the front of the house, even though it's not selling, but a lot of the customer sentiment and the experience and why customers stay with us is harnessed and fostered uh, from within the Macquarie Hub. So we've changed the terminology, we don't talk about that back end anymore, it's now the hub uh -huh. and uh, those people feel pretty special being and, there. And then you transition from that 1 to 5 CSAT to NPS? Yes, and this is a, uh, I guess a little funny part of the chapter, uh, which is that the first time that our CEO uh, read the Fred Reichhill's white paper in the Business Harvard Review, he handed that to our um, GM of Customer Delight, um, who said that it had already been covered. We, we have that. We have this customer-centric thing sorted. And uh, he said, no, 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 I want you to implement this new ultimate question. And reluctantly, that question was added to our already run, already 50 strong survey <laughs> system. So we added the 51st question to a 50 strong survey. And um, I don't know if you've ever tried to analyze uh, the data where 1,400 customers answer 51 questions in order to try and help you provide a better service. Uh, and yes, our customers did fill in uh, 51 uh, of the fields required, quite amazingly. But I have reviewed that data, taking about three months to understand what it meant, another three months to assign actions to people, another three months for those people to actually uh, complete those actions, and another three months for us as an organization to get back to those customers and say, thanks for your feedback over a year ago. We've gotten around to fixing it. Uh, so. And the fact that you did that means that you were actually able to do something with it and you went back to your customers, whereas most people who do that long survey, it just... Stifling, analysis well, it, paralysis, the, it's impossible. That whole three months of analysis and then what? And then it just 
there's no insights to be pulled from it, but we're going to do it again. Yes, yes, indeed. Or, or we're going to do something, but we're not going to tell people what we did because that would be, you know, oh, we can. That might be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, so interestingly, then we uh, took that decision uh, to uh, having having tried to implement some sort of pseudo NPS and failing, but doing not too bad in the CSAT space because after all regardless of which measurement system you use, if at the core you have this thing called PAS, a foundation pillar of the company, all those mechanisms are just gauges of how well you're delivering this thing called PAS. So we were on the right track. We just challenged as to how we were going to measure it. And so our uh, CEO uh, was at one of these kind of uh, breakfast mornings with management consultants, and the guidance was to have a look at this Fred Reichelt book again. And the answer was, we've already done it, and it's kind of had not too much effect. And the answer to that was, well, actually, did you really do it? And this is where I think um, we really learnt about Net Promoter Score. Uh, vast majority of these kind of books, people skim read and kind of think they get it and kind of half implement it. What's critical with the Fred Reichelt's ultimate question is that you execute it to the letter of the law, uh, which means you have to ditch all your other systems. And that's hard for people who've been running these surveys for years and analyzing data for years, thinking that they've got all the right 15 different weather vanes as to how they can improve service. Um, Whereas the beauty of Net Promoter Score or the important part of implementing the Net Promoter Score change or transformation with your company is to get rid of all the other metrics so that you have one metric that you can uh, make great decisions upon, have one metric that the entire organization can galvanize around Mm -hmm. and not be clouded by analysis paralysis. It's quite clearly set out in the book that if you have a large enough data pool with a, a large enough set of inputs, uh, if you're looking for your yes, you'll get your yes. And if you look at the same data pool, you're looking for your no, you'll get your no. And so it's important to say, no, we don't have uh, uh, masses of inputs of data, customer uh, impact score, customer satisfaction score, net promoter score. You say no, I'm only having one system. And so the game changer for us was when we moved away from and decided at that point to get rid of CSAT, to get rid of the other systems, and to transition entirely to Net Promoter Score. Uh Was that a massive change? No, it wasn't. All we had to do was simply change the recording in our IVR-based survey so that we were asking uh, a question around from zero to 10 as opposed to a a scale of one to five. Now, actually, it turned out to be a little tricky to get the 10 in because 10 is one zero, and if you're slow on that, you might get the one score. But with a bit of smart, and those smarts are very common today, but when we first implemented it, it was a bit tricky. But um, we, we, so fairly seamless transition from CSAT uh, in the IVR to Net Promoter Score. Our Net Promoter Score at the time, when we first launched, was plus 11. Uh-huh. And we were very happy with plus 11 because the industry benchmark for the telecommunications industry in Australia was minus 45, around where the big four banks are in Australia today. It's true. They were, they, we were 50 points north of our next competitors in this space. Yeah. So we're very happy with that plus 11. Yeah. Um, however, because we now had one number, net promoter score, and uh, not analysis paralysis, we were able to understand what different geographies were doing and we were able to compare and contrast that one number to say, well, if it's, and there were, there were business units that were at minus 50, for example, at that time when we first launched. And there were other business units that were plus 60. 
So we were trying to understand well, how, what, what, was, what was different and what was special. Interestingly, in the minus 50 space, that was largely out of the federal government, which is one of our key customers. And when we talked to the individuals who were giving us those scores, they said, uh, absolutely, we give you a five. That's the highest we ever give. We're very happy with your service. And we then had to educate that customer base that the scale was not one to five, which is what it had been, but it was zero to 10. Uh -huh. And as soon as they understood that, they changed behavior and that minus 50 very quickly transformed to a positive number. So there was a, a, a little bit of transition with the, in the customer base, but no gaming. Uh, it was just an understanding of uh, what we were trying to do and, and that it was trying to provide a better service based on understanding customer sentiment back to the customers. And as soon as customers got that, it was a game changer for the overall and, number. And that, uh, what did you say, plus? 11. Plus 11. And was that, that was your relationship score or your transactional score? That was the transactional score. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you ask about relationship, that, that's a good point. We started, when we moved to NPS, focusing on three of the key customer corridor touch points. So we've got eight today, but when we started, we focused on three. And they're the lion's share. That was use, which was our contact center function, largely incident management, problem management, change management. It was pay, which is billing disputes, paying our bills or not. And it was receive, which was around service delivery. So we implemented a project. At the end of that project, we got a score. And so we focused on those three. Um, uh, and they're still the lion's share today. It's about 80 plus percent. Is in, is in those three customer corridor segments. And interestingly, when we first tried this, we did try other corridor segments, but the uh, data sets were so small, it was kind of distracting from the real message, which was gained from the three main corridor segments. Yeah. Once we fine-tuned those corridor segments, then we expanded out further to include other segments, like when you first sign up, so the onboarding experience, even when you're exiting, so the uh, cancelling process, when you're researching our web pages and you're interacting with telemarketing person. So we added those segments later to get the holistic experience. And our net promoter score today is the aggregate of all of those uh, data touch points. But to your point, the lion's share is in uh, use, pay, receive, and the lion's share of those is in use. And then you asked about relationship. Yes, we have. Uh, part of our telemarket function is for an individual to call the C-level across our customer base once a year to make sure that their relationship is um, where it should be or if there's any feedback in relation to their relationship as a whole. And uh, we ask the Net Promoter Score as part of that yearly engagement. Uh, so we're getting that relationship data as well. And that also feeds into the overall aggregated Net Promoter Score score. Okay. So getting back to, we turned on this thing called MPS on CSAT, it was good, but, and this is I think the main message for a, a lot of your listeners. It was good, but we had examples like Harley-Davidson, which were on plus 81. And we were thinking, well, how can we get that kind of fanatical support, right? Those guys are fanatical about the bikes, even before they become a customer. Yeah. On plus 81, and we were on 11, plus 11. So we kind of went, well, there's, there's other things that we can be doing. And the two major transformational changes uh, that, that are all written in the book, so if you execute as per the book, you will execute these two. The first one was around the power of transparency. And this is where we are sharing the data, uh, aggregated score, observable score data, up on plasma screens in our contact center, uh, in all of the, our offices around the country, a real-time score since midnight last night. 
yesterday's score is an absolute number, and the month to date score. It's real time, it's um, transparent, and as well as the aggregated score, and this is also part of the genius, uh, we have a ranked per customer service professional score. And if the customer service professional month to date score is lower than the company target, their name is red on that ranked uh, plasma screen. Mm -hmm. And so, interestingly, that didn't create some of the potential behaviors, or more importantly, it wasn't the average of an average that we forget about, or our supervisor or our manager might talk to us about in our quarterly or monthly or yearly reviews. Because it's real time, because it's transparent, it actually became, a t and is still today, a talking point on the floor within the contact center as to what the entire team, not that individual, could do to raise uh, that score for that particular customer. Because customers that have had bad experiences have got very long memories. Yeah. And that score today might be a two, could be a three, whatever it is, if it's a detractor, could be seven, eight passive, still not good enough. That score may be relating to an experience that had way before today's interaction. But it becomes a talking point, and it's the statistic, or that number is not important, but the data point's important, and the fact that we can see it is important. So a key part of our implementation of our contact center was that we ensured that the customer's response to the interaction was visible on the screen of the customer service professional that they last spoke to immediately after the interaction. And so what that does is it changes the behavior of the customer service professional on this call during the interaction so that it, it is an anticipation of a 10 out of 10 score. I know this score is coming, I know it's coming right after this call, and if I'm delivering a great customer experience for you on this call, I'm gonna see my 10 out of 10, uh, which is driven that, uh, to, to be a much higher score because the individuals are focused on that number, it's coming right after the call, it's real, it's transparent, and everybody can see it. Yeah. If for argument's sake, there I am, I'm on the phone, I'm talking to a customer, my expectation is 10 out of 10. You're saying that if I get a five out of 10, we stop the line and you get a live, do people listen back to the call? Does, a, does somebody else step in? Do you, is it a live debrief or do you roll bad calls up and do that on a Friday? Sure, good, good, good. No, it has, it's not on a Friday, it doesn't wait. So first part of the magic, transparency. Second part of the magic is something we call the supervisor feedback loop. Uh -huh. The duration for us is 24 hours. The shorter you can make this duration, the better. But if you give us anything other than a nine or a 10 out of 10, we'll call you back within 24 hours to understand how we could have gotten a, how we could have gotten a better score. And not the agent, but their manager. Their manager indeed, yeah, yes. Okay. And why is that? That's because the number one reason why customers or people in general don't participate in a surveying mechanism is because they don't believe the number goes anywhere, mm -hmm. at least not anywhere useful for them. Or usually, makes any difference. Or makes any difference. It's usually, it's gone into the ether or gone up to some mothership somewhere for their benefit, not for the customer that's giving that feedback. And so the call that they get back from a supervisor within 24 hours is actually quite a surprise and a delightful call just simply to receive that call. Because all of a sudden, They've given their feedback. They may have received a very bad service, hopefully not, but if they had, you know, we can manage that. But regardless, they're getting a call back from the supervisor within 24 hours. That in itself is a delight. Now, the content of the conversation, this is the real power of every closed-loop surveying mechanism, is that you've earned the right 
to have a quite meaningful, rich conversation about the experience and how you can improve the experience. And that's regardless of whether it was a disaster, mediocre, could have been better or great. You've earned that right to have that conversation. And that's where you get your actionable data. Uh -huh. And this is where I say it's not about the number. The uh -huh. number is actually not important. What's important is that you've earned the right to have meaningful conversation at managerial level with the customer to understand how you could have gotten a, a better service. And indeed, if there's actionable data, so the learning is on our side, yes, we have to improve our process, we have to change our process, we will transparently log a ticket within our problem management database, which customers have full access to the customer portal, and we will track that problem through to resolution with visibility of the customer. At the end of resolving that ticket, we'll say resolve ticket, Thank you so much for your feedback. Maybe it was six months ago that it could have taken us six months to implement that process improvement. And we say thank you so much for your information on that call. We've resolved it. We haven't only resolved it for you, we've resolved it for other 500 customers that are impacted by the same process change. Well, how good do they feel? They feel a little bit like that Harley Davidson customer that gave a plus 81 score. They become fanatical yeah. about being a customer acquired telecom because they know that their feedback which was listened to was actioned. And they know that it's solved for them, but also they can feel great about the fact that it's solved for many other customers as well. And that's where you turn a okay customer experience into a fanatical customer experience. Interestingly, Fred Weichelt, who visited our contact center to see um, how well we'd implemented the ultimate question book, gave us the feedback that it uh, was the best execution of his book that he'd ever seen on the planet, which we were very proud of. Very good. So, um, indeed. And, and it is about the execution of the book. Uh, not about the, some of the concepts in the book. It's about actually reading chapter for chapter and executing exactly what it says. And I think what you've, what you've summed up there is a philosophy which is, I mean, I do see people with reasonable scores chasing a score and therefore gaming the system or trying to game the system or I see people often with their response rates are really low had a client who thought they had a score of 60 something uh, their response rate was only 20 when I gave them the feedback about as you said you do call the CEO do that they ended up with a score of 21 which wasn't quite as pat yourself on the back it was room for maneuver uh, more to do here but I think the philosophy is that as a business it's, it's seeking criticism so if somebody says you're amazing you're brilliant like, that's great it gives you a warm fuzzy feeling but you've got n there's nothing you can do with that if somebody says look there's a thing here that you're not doing very well that's it's like gold dust you jump on that and it's like oh that's brilliant we've got we've, we've found something else to fix this is magic and we can it's about the people you hire and the managers you have and, the, and it's that it sort of becomes a philosophy to be restless about going after more things finding Absolutely. more things and so mm. you know it must be a surprise to the customers when if you complain somebody treats your complaint as if it's a gift yes we're very grateful indeed we are grateful <laughs> For the scores that aren't nines and tens, yeah, because we're we're because not everybody complains. Not everyone complains. So, so, you've, so you've got people. You've got people who haven't told you about that. Maybe they've, maybe they've given you a higher score because they don't want an interaction. But you know, when somebody does is honest and transparent and gives you a score, then 
you get to fix well, it for lots of other people. Well, indeed. And what we found around specifically the supervisor feedback loop is that that transformed the participation rates as well. Uh -huh. So there were two massive jumps. First was from plus 11 to plus 33, then from plus 33 to plus 50, and now plus uh, 70. Uh, but those two jumps were attributable to both those two pieces of magic, the um, harnessing the power of transparency and the supervisor feedback loop. The second thing that the supervisor feedback loop did was it also transformed our participation rates up into the 80s. Now, it's not quite 80 today, but it has been as high as 80% participation rate wow. of transferable surveys. And so you kind of go, how did that happen? And the answer is because our customers were wanting to be part of our journey. They got it. They understood that if they gave us feedback, if they finished those surveys, that actually the service would improve, not just for them, but for everybody. And that's where you get the fanatical customer support. But your data, when actioned, then touches all of your customers because you're getting the lion's share of your customer sentiment as part of your survey and mechanism. So we used to be happy when we got that into the teens. Believe it or not, when we started this game, Cope gave us some advice on um, moving from single digits to double digits in terms of participation rates. We thought that was great. But when we understood this supervisor feedback loop, we saw that number go from teens up as high as plus 80. Uh, or sorry, not plus 80, 80% of surveyable opportunities were completed. And yeah, that really does give you much bigger levers of understanding of your true customer sentiment that you can then action. And because it's transparent, it's not a statistic that we're getting lost in, it's uh, uh, galvanizable across the exec team. And so uh, you you're putting the customer in the room as soon as you're sharing net promoter score data. It's actionable data, and you've got 80% of your customers contributing to that data point. Well, it's very hard to drive other agendas that aren't customer-centric if one of the huge driver in the room is your net promoter score. And you said that you've got that transparency, the supervisor loop, and that got you into the 30s, and then you went 50s and 70s, what? No, the, so the, the, um, there was two-step. It was the harnessing the power of transparency from plus 11 to plus 30, uh -huh. and from plus 30 to plus 50, and subsequently plus 70. Ah, okay. supervisor feedback loop. So those are the two magic points. There are lots of other contributing factors to... Uh, but um, they, they were the two. We no, identified those as the key ones Thank that you. were effective in our journey. And I think I think that's uh, that's exactly what I was trying to. Hopefully, I was going to pull out of you today some things where people could go aha, and take your aha moments and sure read the book. Yes, sparsely. <laughs> yes, but also just take those and go. That's what we're not doing. Our participation rates are low, and I see that all the time. And you go, okay, well, how do we how do we get that back up? And then you've got more actionable insight and you just get into that positive loop. Is there another story you could share about what this, Absolutely. Sort of, what so, this looks like? So again, it's about saying there's a moment to delight a customer. Uh, I'll share two. Firstly, a mobile provisioner has just completed the porting of a mobile fleet across to Macquarie Telecom and the uh, mobile provisioner within Macquarie Telecom is talking to the fleet admin. The fleet admin has just left their office and as soon as uh, they've closed the door, they realize that they've left their uh, Opal card, which is the transport uh, card uh, in their wallet on their desk, and uh, had no transportation home uh, because the door uh, had been locked and they had no way of getting in. Uh -huh. And so a mobile provisioner understood there's uh, something that we can do here. And he said, is it okay if he arranged an Uber uh, uh, to transport the fleet admin home? and uh, he used his own personal Uber 
account to arrange for an Uber to arrive at the office and transport the fleet administrator home. And because it was his Uber account, of course, when the Uber got to its destination, he got a, a message saying, uh, journey complete, to which he was able to send a little SMS saying, I uh, hope you arrived home uh, safe and sound. And of course, got the positive uh, response back and very grateful response back. Yeah. We couldn't have scripted that. We couldn't have said, hey, when this happens, do this. So our model is entirely based on empowerment and our individuals being empowered to seize those moments to delight when they can. In this instance, use uh, uh, someone's own personal Uber account, uh, which was obviously very, very uh, helpful to that fleet admin uh, who needed to get home that evening. Yeah. Another one which I use, and I think is quite a good example of um, prioritizing the customer experience over operational efficiency, is where the customer phones in, again it's a mobile example, but the customer phones in to reset their password on their phone, and the customer service professional can hear a baby crying in the background. And uh, rather than try and resolve that incident, offers that perhaps we could have the call at a later time, later time in the day which would be very operationally inefficient for a contact center to make two calls when one call would do uh, to, to resolve a password issue. Uh, but the customer responded with, no, that's uh, quite okay, that's my newborn baby that's just arrived home from hospital. Well, in terms of operational efficiency, we're now breaking all the rules because the customer service professional chose to put a handbrake on with regards to resolving that ticket and spend as long as this customer wants to talking about probably what's the most important, one of the most important events in their life, which is newborn baby has arrived home. So we spent 15 minutes speaking to the customer about the newborn baby, the height of the baby, the weight of the baby, the hospital they were born in, the spouse's name as much as the customer wants to share. Yeah. And when 15 minutes later, operationally inefficient time as a contact center function, uh, but when the customer wants to um, finish talking about newborn baby, uh, we continue to resolve the ticket, reset the password and uh, resolve that ticket um, and close it with the customer. But that's not where it ends. So uh, immediately then we arrange to have a bouquet of flowers sent to that house uh, with a congratulatory note with the baby's name, with the spouse's name. And the uh, next day we get a picture um, sent back from that customer um, of the baby and the spouse, their family, new family photograph, yeah. shared with the customer service professional who took it out of uh, their operational efficiency window to uh, put customer experience first and say thank you. And of course that photograph is up in the person's cubicle and everyone that passes by the cubicle says, uh, did you have a baby? No, that's customer ABC. And we simply share the great message which is uh, we, are, we are enthusiastically human, prioritizing the customer experience over uh, operational efficiency. And as a result, we get, uh, yeah, we, we, we get very high customer sentiment uh, as the, as the uh, prize. And then we also, and this is a key part of our overall program, is we get to share those stories um, across our but town halls. You also take what is often seen as uh, modern-day slavery, working in call centres and sort of soul-destroying, like working down a salt mine. Yeah. You, take, you take that sort of, how do we do this for as little money as possible without totally destroying our customer satisfaction? And you turn into something where somebody who is hardwired to want to deliver great service gets to come to work and has the opportunity to do a thing that they want to do without having to watch the clock and put service before profit and then the profit follows. It's absolutely right and it's interesting because I used to, uh, I mean, my focus on ITIL and, and from, from my background, 
I uh, observed that the average handling time of a voice call, so we do four lines of business, voice, mobile data, and cloud service. So the average time of a voice call before we opened our contact center was 254 seconds. And after we opened our contact center, it was 500 seconds. So we basically doubled AHT for voice calls. And if you said to a contact center manager, I'm going to double the AHT for one of your lines of business, they'd probably say, that's fine, but I need double the number of people to manage those calls. Interestingly, with the same number of people and double, having doubled AHT, we halved the abandonment rate. So the target I said at the start was 5%. We are actually on 3%, and we have that 1.5% abandonment rate. And why was that? It was because our customers knew when they got through to our contact center, they were going to have a very rich human experience, and they were willing to wait for that experience, uh, which they weren't willing to do with a standard contact center. So I've got one last question for you. Sure. Do you have a recorded message that says, your call is important to us, please wait? Almost. Not quite. Because that's uh, obviously an oxymoron. So every contact center is built for an average number of calls to come in. And guess what? We don't have the money, nor any contact center, we have the money for the double or triple the call volume. Now, that'd be crazy. We have to charge for that. So we have a contact center is based on the Erlang data that we have to work with. There's a number of bumps and seats that we need to have at any one time. There are occasions, we call them a mass service disruption, where there are an influx of a large number of calls and therefore the number of agents we have can't manage that influx. When that happens, there is a recording that kicks in at two minutes and it guides uh, the customer to either our portal, to log the ticket through our portal, or leave a voicemail that we will respond to, or yes, waste uh, and, and calls important. But we're giving customer choice, we're empowering the customer at that point to say, you can actually do this online yourself. Yeah. You can uh, leave a voicemail. We come back to you. Or yes, please hold. It's it. I was but it's because I, the Connex Center can't be designed, and it would be wrong to design a Connex Center to manage max overflow situations. No, I just I, I just remember talking to the guys at First Direct Telephone Bank in the UK with similar high levels of net promoter score, and they sort of said mostly you ring a contact center, and it doesn't matter whether you ring them three o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the afternoon. We are experiencing high volumes of calls today. And, and he said, look, you know, they, they have taken a deliberate decision to not have enough people to answer your call. Yes. And they take a deliberate decision to have enough people to answer the call quickly enough. Yes. And it's just, you have a choice. And it comes back to, is it about price, cost, is it, or is it about customer service? So. Yes. Well, I happen to be the guy who did that Erlang analysis um, nine years ago when we created our contact center. And we realized it was a hard shoulder period and it was a core business hours period and we staffed accordingly. Yeah. And uh, as I say, we managed, and again, it's not for the customer service professional to care about, but we managed the 80-20 GOSS rule, which was largely palatable across our customer base. Okay. Thank you very much indeed for your, your time today. That's been fantastic. Lots of good stories. What did you do? How bad was it? Look, wherever people are on the journey, the story gives them they're probably not as bad as you were, and it sets of some over what period of time? Nine years. Nine years ago, we started yeah, the so, journey. I mean, so it's not an overnight thing. It's but, not an but, overnight but, thing. But yeah. but it's like you know, even in an industry where customer expectation is low, you've been able to drive to get world class. Well, it is, and it was part of the vision, as I mentioned, that our CEO had to create a best beyond class yeah. contact love center. That, love that phrase. And with our Net Promoter Score published on our home pages, 
we have, of course, all of the companies on the ASX that publish their Net Promoter Score, we have the highest. So we actually can claim we've achieved this uh, vision of creating a world-class contact centre. The best we customer have service score in Australia is public listed companies. Of all of the ASX listed companies that publish their Net Promoter Scores, that's correct, yes. Well, look, that's a great place to finish. Thank you very much. Indeed. Thank you very much.